Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. From KQED. Hey, everyone. This is Bay Curious, and I'm Olivia Allen Price. I've been doing a lot of reflecting recently about times in my life when racism was on display and I was either too young or too naive or too privileged to see it. And one thing that I'm questioning is my entire history education, K through 12. For the most part, I was taught these whitewashed, simplistic fables. And I I do mean fables. You know, Christopher Columbus was this bold risk taker. Native Americans and pilgrims were friends who sat down to a tasty feast. The civil rights movement ended racism in America. After that, everything was fine. Looking back now, it's embarrassing. I don't even really want to admit it here on the podcast. But I know it's been a revelation that some of you have had too. And it's one today's question asker had years ago. Filipino American history, Asian American history, like Latinx American history, it's not being taught in classrooms. Like, I kind of didn't know my own history. This is Michael Verai. Uh, I'm 23 years old and I currently live in Mountain View, and I'm a recent graduate of UC Davis. In college, Michael took action to fix this history education he got. He minored in Asian American studies. And one day, a professor mentioned something that he's been wondering about ever since that there was actually a revolution in the Bay Area for an ethnic studies field. Is this true, and how did it happen? I'll go ahead and answer that first question. Yes, it's true. The field of ethnic studies was born from a revolution at San Francisco State in 1968. How it happened? That's today's episode. You couldn't escape it. You look around the campus. There are only a handful of minority students. We wanted to find out and be educated about ourselves. And if we could not get that, then nobody could get an education. The police came down heavy, hard, and they just began cracking skulls. Today on Bay Curious, we're revisiting the longest student strike in U.S. history, a five-month standoff between students and administrators at San Francisco State that ultimately led to the first College of Ethnic Studies in the nation. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. 
Reporter Asal Asanapur has the story on how the student strike at SF State changed what students learn around the country. It was November of 1968. The U.S. was 13 years into the Vietnam War. American soldiers hiking their way through the sweaty jungles of South Vietnam, searching for an elusive enemy. Martin Luther King had been assassinated earlier that year. And the Black Panther Party, started in the Bay Area, demanded systemic change for Black communities plagued by poverty and police brutality. That's what Black students at San Francisco State wanted, too. There are members of the Black Student Unions who are also members of the Black Panther Party uh, and vice versa. This is Nesbitt Crutchfield. He started at San Francisco State in 1967 as a business school graduate student. But he was also an aspiring revolutionary and joined the Black Student Union. It was the very first one in the country. I felt very privileged to be a member of the Black Student Union. It was very clear to me that the Black Student Union represented a very progressive energy, a very progressive voice, a very progressive thought among Black students at state, among Black students in the Bay Area. But just a small percentage of Black students went to SF State. Enrollment rates for minority students had dwindled down to just 4%, even though 70% of students in the SF Unified School District were from minority backgrounds. And Black students were just a fraction of that 4%. It was very unusual to see Black people in any positive positions. As a Black person, you expected, for all intents and purposes, to be one of the very, very few Black people in whatever classroom, laboratory, auditorium that you were in. It was overwhelmingly white. Amidst that whiteness, Black students were hungry to study their own history. The Black Student Union had been pushing the university to create a Black Studies department for nearly three years. But administrators resisted the idea. So students created their own spaces to do that kind of learning. Even though ethnic studies was not validated by the university, doesn't mean that that study wasn't taking place. Jason Ferreira works in the Department of Race and Resistance at San Francisco State's College of Ethnic Studies. He's spent years collecting oral histories on the student strike. There was something called the Experimental College, which was a student-run initiative for them to teach their own classes. So that would be one space. The Black Student Union had its own classes, so that was another space. Within these spaces, it wasn't just about the syllabus or the books they read. It was an era of young people asking questions and wanting to transform their communities, right? And that impulse, that that hunger to transform one's communities is actually what forms the basis of ethnic studies. By 1968, SF State was like a bubbling cauldron of Black culture and consciousness. Sort of what was happening in the broader culture of Black is Beautiful and James Brown, I'm Black and I'm Proud. This Black activism triggered questions in the minds of many young people of color. About who am I? What is my relationship and my community's relationship to society? Why is there a Chinatown? What's the basis of that segregation? What, why is this happening? What is this? This doesn't look right. It doesn't reflect the community. 
It's around this time that Penny Nakatsu was grappling with her own questions about race and identity. At San Francisco State, she pursued a self-directed degree in Asian American studies. We weren't Asian Americans then. We were Orientals. And Oriental is a term that was imposed on us by the larger society. So starting to use the term Asian American was a way of, of taking back our, our own destiny. Penny found herself gravitating towards people with like-minded values who were involved in the anti-war movement. She became a member of a student organization called the Asian American Political Alliance. It was just one of many ethnic student organizations popping up on campus. And in early fall of 1968, these organizations banded together and formed a coalition, the Third World Liberation Front. And at that particular time, Third World referred to the non-aligned countries or cultures in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. It was synonymous with how we might use people of color today. The students saw parallels between their fight with the school and what they saw as the oppression of the Vietnamese by the U.S. military. One of San Francisco State's most influential anti-Vietnam organizers was a popular English instructor named George Murray. He also happened to be the Minister of Education for the Black Panther Party. Murray was beloved by students, but his outspoken politics didn't always sit well with SF State administrators. The war in Vietnam is racist. It is the war that uh, crackers like Johnson are using black soldiers and uh, poor white soldiers and Mexican soldiers as dupes and fools to fight against uh, people of color in Vietnam. We're being uh, attacked by the power structure of this college and the state of California. The Board of Trustees fired Murray over a comment like this one on November 1st, 1968. Five days later, the Black Student Union and the Third World Liberation Front joined together and went on strike. One week ago, the day after the election, the strike began. There were and are 10 demands, but most of the attention seems to swirl around Black Panther George Murray. George Murray's suspension was like setting fire to kindling. Student strikers wanted the right to define their own educational experience. They demanded a school of third world studies, plus a black studies degree and department. We knew, we saw, we felt that geniuses were falling by the wayside, being wasted. I'm talking about geniuses in education, geniuses in in literature, geniuses in drama, geniuses in art. This mattered not just because those spots were given to white students, but because the military disproportionately drafted black and brown men to Vietnam. They weren't eligible for student exemption if they weren't in school, which meant that their right to an education was a matter of life or death. Strikers vowed to boycott all classes until the school met their demands. We wanted to find out and be educated about ourselves. And if we could not get that, then nobody could get an education. Initially, strikers engaged in acts of disruption, known as the War of the Flea. Students were the fleas, and the school, well, it was the dog. Strikers did things like put cherry bombs in toilets and checked out tons of books at once in order to overwhelm the school's library system. 
Sometimes they barge into classrooms and threaten to remove students and teachers if they didn't join the strike. Almost immediately, administrators invited police on campus. They swarmed the school dressed in riot gear and armed with five-foot batons. Students responded by throwing rocks and cursing out the police. The police came down heavy, hard, and they just began cracking skulls. The administration actually provided space on campus for the police department to set up a, a unit. I'm quite sure that they wouldn't have cared if some of us had died. By this time, Nesbitt Crutchfield had become a leader of the strike, often speaking to huge crowds of protesters. I've come out with 15 demands, minimum demands, very clear demands. But Nesbitt's involvement put a target on his back. One day early on in the strike, police surrounded the Black Student Union. I volunteered to leave the Black Student Union first. And, and the police started running at me. And I got beat up. I'm talking about with nightsticks and with boots and with fists. Nesbitt was arrested and escorted off campus. He says he was the first Black Student Union member to be arrested during the strike. He faced charges for illegal assembly, resisting arrest, and intent to injure and maim, and spent over a year in jail. At 80 years old, he's still dealing with the trauma of that time. I don't think that you can talk to anyone who was at stake, who participated in this, who ran from the police, who literally ran from the police. I don't think you can find anyone who can say that they're the same person. Many white students followed the lead of strike leaders like Nesbitt. They believed that without ethnic studies, they themselves had been denied a proper education. Their support intensified as the strike dragged on and the violence continued. About a month into the strike, teachers joined in. Many had demands of their own, and this only increased tensions with the administration. This is President Robert Smith during just one of many confrontations on campus. In this particular incident, black organizers demanded to know why Smith called in the cops. He insisted it was for the students' own safety. Why did you instruct the police to come in front of the Black Student Union office? Would you please answer that, President Smith? All right, I didn't instruct the police to go into the uh, front of the Black Student's office. Let me uh, say that this is not the way to run a college, and it's not... And Historian Jason Ferreira says President Smith was actually kind of sympathetic to protesters. He didn't really want police on campus, and he didn't want to fire the instructor George Murray either. For a minute, Smith relented to the strikers and shut down the school. But he was facing a lot of pressure from politicians and the board to keep things orderly. Robert Smith tried to thread the needle. But by that point, the genie was out of the bottle. The students were pushing hard. They had developed momentum. They had community support behind them. So Robert Smith resigns. And who, who do they bring in? Their guy, S.I. Hayakawa. Hayakawa was popular with conservatives in Sacramento and extremely unpopular with strikers. 
Their confrontations were heated and frequent. Tactics of intimidation and suppression of freedom of speech were ruining this college. Early on in his role as interim president, Hayakawa famously climbed aboard a sound truck and yanked the wires from a loudspeaker during a student protest. And in early January, Hayakawa declared an end to student gatherings on campus. In a press conference from that day, he said he believes in the right to free speech, with one important caveat. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom to incite riot. Strikers carried on anyway. Penny Nakatsu was protesting on January 23, 1969, in what many call the mass bust. First, it was a short announcement uh, saying this gathering is an illegal gathering and to disband. But disbanding was impossible. Police were there immediately. Two lines of police came up and basically surrounded the uh, over 500 people who were there for the rally and trapped all of the individuals who were caught within that net, that human net, so to speak. Police charged at the students. Penny says it was one of the bloodiest and most frightening days of the entire strike. It was a military movement, literally a practice orchestrated military movement. Hundreds were arrested. San Francisco's court system was backed up for months. Virtually all of the individuals who were arrested had to uh, spend some jail time. Uh, a lot of those folks were blacklisted. If they were university uh, lecturers or teachers, a lot of them lost their jobs. So there were real consequences to having participated in that event. It took two more months of protesting. But eventually, on March 20th, Hayakawa and strikers negotiated a deal. After five months of protesting, the strike was over. The school agreed to accept virtually all non-white applicants for fall of 1969. They also agreed to establish a college of ethnic studies, the first in the country, with classes about communities of color. Hayakawa gave Penny Nakatsu and her peers the job of designing a curriculum from scratch. And they only had a few months to do it. And I have a feeling that one of the reasons why the administration agreed to that was I don't think they thought we could pull it off. But they did. The College of Ethnic Studies was ready by fall of 1969. Ethnic studies is a way of embracing all of the cultures that make up not just this country, but, but the world. And if we don't understand each other, how are we going to get along? The strike, it should be said, was not the end of something but in many ways was the beginning of a lifelong commitment to social justice. And advocates have made some progress. After the police killing of George Floyd in May, California legislators advanced a bill that would require all incoming Cal State freshmen to take an ethnic studies course. Inability of this country to come to terms with not just the legacy, but the ongoing practices of racism and white supremacy really speaks to you know, the demands of the Third World Liberation Front and the Black Student Union for an education that was relevant, an education that was transformative. You know, it's, an, it's still an uphill battle, but we'll win. That story was reported by Asal Asanapur. 
Michael Verai, the question asker who started us on this journey, agrees that these classes are necessary. I feel like it's important to acknowledge that because we're becoming like a more and more diverse community that, you know, we do have roots and we do have history that we need to acknowledge and show. Thanks for asking the question, Michael. Today's episode was produced by Asal Asanapur, Katrina Schwartz, Rob Spate, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our show is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.